Bless the name of Yahuwah. Let's turn in our scriptures to Ivrim, the book of Hebrews in chapter 12. We are going to be looking at the priesthood today. Many people have contacted me, especially the past couple of weeks, concerning the priesthood. Is there even such a thing today? Where do you even get this from? Is it scriptural? Is it the vanity of man? Is it doctrine and dogma? We'll be looking at the priesthood and its validity, um, validity excuse me, in the scriptures today. But we're also going to be looking at this race of faith that's spoken of in Ivrim in Hebrews chapter 12. Because we are in a battle. We are in a race of faith. We're going to be looking at the discipline of Yahuwah. The discipline of Yahuwah in our lives as he corrects our course and he leads us and he guides us. He ultimately wants to renew our spiritual vitality. Excite us about this faith, this journey, this race that we're on. And we are not alone. I know so many of you feel so alone. So many of our audience feel so isolated, whether they're in Canada or Florida or the East Coast or in the Midwest. And we've got the Fellowship Finder online and people are striving and looking for fellowship and so many people feel alone, but we are not alone. We are in glorious company. That's what the book of Hebrews specifically In chapter 12 tells us, you may feel alone, but you are in glorious company. Ultimately, are we going to hear, shema, not listen, but hear and do. The Hebrew word shema, will we hear the still small voice? Or are we going to be so caught up with the clatter of the earthquake, with the lightning and the thunder and the falling of the rocks? Or will we hear the still small voice, just like the prophet Eliyahu, Elijah did? Because that's where he's at. All of this is found in Hebrews chapter 12. It is rich. Let's dig right in with verse 1. Therefore, seeing that we are also surrounded with so great a cloud of Israelite witnesses. The Greek word there is nephos. Nephos. It means a mass pile, a mass pile of clouds. The other Greek word, nepheli, meaning a singular cloud, is not in the text. It's not just one singular cloud, but we are a mass pile, like a thundercloud of witnesses. All around us. So even if you're out there in internet land and you feel so alone and isolated, you're not. You have the nephos, the mass pile of cloud of witnesses all around you. And what's their purpose? Let us lay aside that spiritual fat. Get rid of the blubber, bubba. Right? You fat knacker. Seriously, that's what it's saying. Get rid of the weight. Set aside every weight and sin that does so easily beset us. 
And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking to Yahusha, the author and finisher of our emunah, our faith, who for the simcha, the joy that was set before him, endured the eights, the tree, despising the shame. And he has sat down at the right hand of the Kesei, the throne of Yahuwah. Yahusha, what does he do? He promises to share his authority with those who endure on earth. And he promises to share his authority to those of us that overcome life's temptations. And there are so many temptations in this fast electronic world that causes us so many distractions today. But what exactly is that authority that Yahusha has that he wants to share with us? What is that authority? Is it the Aaronic authority? Is it a rabbinic authority? Is it a Judean authority? What is the authority specifically that the author has spent 12 chapters, 11 chapters previously talking to the audience about? Matthew 3.15, Hebrews 7.11, and Matthew 26, verse 57, specifically the transference of the authority of the Malkizedic priesthood to Yahusha himself specifically. That's the authority that he has that he wants to share with you and I. He doesn't want to keep it all to himself. That's not the Father's heart, is it? He wants to share his authority with us. His sharing of his authority is an acknowledgement of his bestowing on believers the priesthood. This isn't like the funky monks, the Catholic priesthood. This isn't the Mormon priesthood. This isn't some conceptual idea, but it is a living, breathing priesthood that he wants to share and bestow upon believers who acknowledge him as the Kohen Haggadal and the rightly dividing point of the Torah. There's no way, no way around the sharing of this delegated authority through scripture. You see, I don't want any of you, I don't want any of our audience to fall into the trap of ever elevating history over scripture. We should be wise as serpents, but as harmless to the text and as harmless as doves. We use, script, we use the scripture to guide us. And we use history to supplement scripture. But you always have to elevate something And thus, you would always have to what? Denigrate something. What do you choose to elevate and what you choose to denigrate will be your very life. I choose to elevate the priesthood of Yahusha HaMashiach as the Kohen Haggadah, the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. I then choose to elevate scripture above all other text 
on this planet. And then I use history to supplement scripture, but I know what I elevate is the word of Yahuwah. We have to be careful because otherwise, as Brad Scott so nicely puts it, you'll become so smart, you'll be just a pointy head intellectual and you'll actually become a what? A fool. Because you get so smart in yourself that you forget the elevation of scripture over your intellectual ideas. Take it from me. Intellect and logic will fail you. It is only the emunah that the author is writing to the audience, speaking to the audience about faith that will sustain you in trials and tribulation. Not how smart you are, not your logic as you try to figure things out because you won't figure them out. That's why we have to elevate Yahusha and elevate the scripture above all things. Look at the priesthood. Revelation 3.21. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. What is he doing right there? He is sharing with you his what? Authority. And we've already established that his authority is, as the Malkit Zedek, Kohen Haggadah. He is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And if he is going to allow you to sit on that priestly throne, which is what? A Melchizedek high priestly throne, then he is what? Sharing his authority with you. What? As a priest. Also, those that overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. He who overcomes. I will grant to him to sit down with me on my kese, my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And he has made us a malchut koanim, very particular Hebrew word there, malchut koanim, a kingdom of priests to his Eloah and Abba, and to him be Tifereth, glory, and dominion, Leolam Vayed, forever and ever, Amen. Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. Revelation chapter 5, verse 10, uses this specific phrasing of what? Malchut Kohanim, or a kingdom of priests. And he has made us a Malchut Kohanim, a kingdom of priests. It's interesting because it comes across in the Greek as poieo, poieo, which means to make without any delay. So this whole idea that you are not a kingdom of priests today, it's something in the future, goes against what the actual scripture says. Firstly, the author of Hebrews says today, if you can hear my voice. The problem is people can't hear his voice. It's that still small voice. And then he says, to make you a, has made us a malchut hashamayim. The Greek word there is poieo, and it means to make without any delay. He's not going to delay, but he is going to make today if you hear his voice. Revelation 1.5 and Revelation 5.10. First Kiefer, Kiefer Olive 2.9 
But you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. A kadosh nation. And a peculiar bunch of weirdos. You really are. That you should show forth the techilot of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who in times past were the low ami. The lower me, not my people, but are now the people of Yahuwah who were the low Ruchamah. The low Ruchamah, the no mercy, but now have obtained Rachamin, mercy. And I use the Hebrew there because we're going to link back to where the Hebrew is because Scripture defines Scripture. Matthew Nolan doesn't define Scripture. Scripture is a dictionary for Scripture. And where the word is used, we go back to where it comes from and it will tell us what on earth we're talking about. You don't have to listen to doctrine, dogma, and religious hierarchy, but the Scripture interprets the Scripture and I'm free from the religious bull of men. I can't stand it. The lemmings will follow the religious hierarchy, but we follow the sovereign authority of the Holy Writ. And we're free. And this is what causes so much irritation in me and people dislike about me, is I can be very argumentative with my personality because I just say, sounds great. Understand where you're coming from. Show me the chapter and verse so I can get right on board with you. Just give me the chapter and give me the verse and I'll sign right up. But it doesn't exist. It's a fantasy of 2,000 years of dogma that you were supposed to protest being a Protestant in the 1600s, but you didn't protest further and further and enough, did you? That you took on so much more of the doctrine of the Catholicos that you find yourself stumbling over doctrine and dogma. But we find here in First Kiefer, Kiefer Olive 2 verse 9, these particular Hebrew words, verse 10, who in times past were the low ami, not my people, but are now the people of Yahuwah, who were the low ruchamah, the no mercy, but have now obtained rachamin. Kiefer, Peter, uses the same priesthood language Not only that, but this phrase is connected back to Shemot, Exodus chapter 19. But it is also a quote that is attributed to the very, listen, the very broken covenant people. Well, who are the very broken covenant people? The low ruchamah, the no mercy and the lower me, or not my people, pronounced in Hosea chapter 1 verse 9 and Hoshea chapter 2 verse 23. The language of the scripture is telling us what this connects back to. It connects back to the broken covenant people. Well, what broken covenant? 
Well, it tells you it's using the very same language as Shemot, Exodus chapter 19. The very priesthood language. So we're not going to rip this out of context. We're going to use the language to find out where it's coming from. You don't have to believe me. It's better if you don't. Just believe what the word says and you find out where it comes from. You find out where this linguistic parallelisms come from. And then you do what the word says. And you're free. We're all free. But they want to enslave you. Because then guess what? You have to keep coming back and understanding their doctrine and their dogma. That's why people fight the freedom that comes with the word of Yahuwah. Exodus Shemot chapter 19 verse 5. Let's connect 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 all the way back to... Shemo, Exodus, chapter 19, verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and Shoma, that means to guard my Brit, my covenant, then you shall be what? A peculiar treasure to me above all peoples. For the earth is mine, and you shall be a Malchut, a Kohanim, a Kadosh nation. You shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see, the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament, attributes priesthood, sacrificial language to believers today. Again, there is no way around this textual fact. I know people will squirm around it, but if you're honest, you cannot get around with the linguistic parallelisms and the connection back to Hosea and Exodus 19 with this textual language. You just can't. You can dance around with a bunch of history, but you've got to face what the scripture says or you deny it. Because now we go on. What does the scripture say? It says, be a living sacrifice. Let us offer the sacrifice of praise. A sweet smell. A sacrifice acceptable, pleasing to Yahuwah. This is from various scriptures throughout the New Testament. What is that language? That is language that was once upon a time, but no more, attributed to the Aaronic priesthood that now is attributed to you. It's priesthood language that is now attributed to you. That's what it is. You cannot dance around this. You have to be honest. And you have to either reject the text, denigrate it, and now start to elevate history. And then everybody is then beholden to your intellectual pointy-headism. Or you go back to the scripture where every man, even the foolish, like me, can find out and become wise. Because any smarts that I have is purely by the grace and mercy of Yahushua HaMashiach. Because he will take what he started with and he will build it. And he took somebody broken and he's built me just like he's built you. So therefore he gets all the glory. That's ultimately what it's all about, isn't it? Not some theological institute and doctrines and dogmas of men.
And you surpass your teachers, don't you? Because the word and the Ruach HaKodesh, Jeremiah 31, 31, is your teacher. No man shall have to teach his brother. Why? Because the Ruach HaKodesh teaches you. I mean, I'll speak the word and I will bring and facilitate, but ultimately it's the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit in you, that is teaching you and confirming his written word, is it not? And leading you. You're no longer beholden to man. But we are beholden to elevate the scripture and the one who teaches us, which is the Kohen Haggadal after the order of Malkitzedek. So the Brit Hadashah, it attributes priesthood language, sacrificial language all over the place to believers today. You can't wiggle around away from that. This is the language that once upon a time was attributed to the Aaronic order, but like I said, it is no more attributed to the Aaronic order but is attributed to the order of Malkitzedek. The New Testament writers acknowledge the transfer of priesthood status to you and I today. To you and I today. Our author now is going to give us two incentives for exercising patient endurance. Why on earth should we be bothered to endure? Why should we be patient? He's going to tell us why. Number one, verse one, in fact, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses of the faith. It's likened to being in an arena, a stadium with the heroes of faith. They're all aligned around in the stands. But the thing is, this isn't Roman pagan games. This is not what he's communicating. They're not in the stands gazing at you because then you would be a what? A gazing stock. In the preceding chapters, he said, no, we're not to be a gazing stock. The witnesses that are in the stadiums looking, the witnesses aren't spectators gazing like the the pagans. They're witnessing to us concerning the faith. The fathers, the patriarchs, the saints in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, they witness to us of the faith, don't they? Where should we get our direction? From pastors? From the Pope? Or from the saints in the Tanakh, the Old Testament? They're the ones that should witness to us. What did Abraham do? You should do it. What did Isaac do? You should do it. What did Jacob and the sons of Jacob, Israel, because you are supposed to be the Israel of the lower Galatians, what did they do? Graft into that tree and produce the same fruit. Don't produce some pagan foreign fruit and say that it's acceptable to Yahweh. That's called syncretism, which is what this religious world we live in today does. Syncretism. We got a little bit of Jesus, and now we're going to syncretize a bunch of pagan Roman nonsense that the Catholics used to enslave the people, that we never had the common sense enough to protest enough from, and we're still going to do it 500 years down the road because we follow the dogma of men in the country clubs that we go to. No. 
You want to play silly? Fine. I don't know how long I've got left on this life, but it's not to play silly with your religion. I take this very seriously, and I want to clean the inside of my cup. And messing around with all that pagan nonsense is dirtying my soul. And I cannot discern. And I need to discern because this world is passing away. There are false flag terrorist attacks all over the bloody world. And it's just about to start. That is a false flag. When the Europeans deliberately, Merkel deliberately imports Islamic radicals. They're not radicals. They're true believers into Europe. Then waits to set off the bomb. And then what do they do? They then restrict your rights because they import. That's, that is the typical false flag. And that's what they're doing. And they're doing, going to do it over here too. Stand back, open up the borders, let them come in. So then they'll set off the devices that then will allow the new world order to take away your rights and enslave you. So we do need to be discerning, don't we? We don't have time to be messing around with all this pagan mumbo-jumbo syncretism in the faith. Because then you will be like sheep led to the slaughter. Or you will be wise as serpents and you will be able to discern what is kadosh, holy, and what is profane. You shall not worship me the way the heathen worship their gods, for I am Yahweh your Elohim. That's it. That's the Bible. Now, I know the religious men say, well, you know, but that's not in the Bible. And the rubber hits the road. But let's go on because he's telling us, he's telling us that we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses because they are witnessing you and I's faithfulness. How faithful are you? How faithful am I? They're witnessing our faithfulness to see if we have the faith. I mean, what do you think? Do you think that Yahuwah alone is the one that says, oh, Carol, yes, she has the faith? No. You see, the scripture says truth is established by what? One, two, or more witnesses. Yahweh is a witness to your faith, but he also has a stadium full of the saints in the Tanakh that are looking at you and I, because they are the second and third and fourth witness to see if we're truly living the faith, or if we compromise. Will we be like Abraham, that will smash the idols in Terah's house, and we'll cross over from one soil that's not producing much crop, to a better soil that is producing a hundredfold. I want to be like Abraham. And I have. That's why I got um, in a lot of trouble. Is I start to smash the idols in my father's house. And you come out of her, my people. It's amazing stuff. But these are the witnesses that surround us. The saints from the Tanakh. They provide a witness with Yahweh to our faith. A matter is established on the basis of two witnesses. They're not gazing at us. They're witnesses of us. We are to be gazing at them as our examples of victory. They're the heroes of the faith, aren't they? They're the heroes of the faith. 
In chapter 11, those heroes are to be in our mind, encouraging us to believe that the race can be won by faith and patient endurance. Now, these witnesses, the Greek word for witnesses is martis, 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 where, of course, we get our English word martyr. It has a very interesting history, this witness, the witness, the martis, because it originally had a sense of someone who saw something. Originally, you know how language changes over time? But it originally meant somebody who saw something, like a spectator at a game. But over time, it came to have a technical and specifically a religious meaning. One who had died for their faith and thereby witnessed to its validity. One who had died for their faith and therefore witnessed to its validity. And in light of chapter 11 and chapter 12 being retrospective, I believe the word... Martis, it already had a specialized religious meaning by the time it was written down in this text. And we can see from a couple of passages in the Tanakh that suffering had already become associated with witnessing. Let's turn to Nehemiah, Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 9. Um, Brother John... Would you be able to go out into the foyer and do like 50 push-ups or something? No, just, just turn the, 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 I think the heat in the foyer is too hot. Or I'm too hot. Nehemiah chapter 9. Let's have a look at this, how the language, martis, those who witnessed, by the time of Nehemiah, Nehemiah, we can see that by looking at somebody, these people, and testifying to something, these people actually were persecuted. Nehemiah chapter 9, we see, Nevertheless, they, talking of the children of Israel, were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your Torah behind their backs, and they killed your Nevim, your prophets, that testified against them to turn them to you, and they worked great provocations. So Yahweh's prophets witnessed against them, and what did they do to the prophets? They witnessed them. They put them in the witness unprotection program and martyred them, did they not? That's exactly what they did. They martyred them. They witnessed them. They put them in the witness and protection program. Jeremiah chapter 23, Yirmiyahu 23, verse 18 and 22. We can see this again, that martyrs had already been established, not as just looking at something, but those that looked and witnessed were then put in harm's way. For who has stood in the council of Yahuwah and has perceived and heard his word? Who has marked his word and heard it? Verse 22. But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to listen to my words, then they would have turned from their evil derech way and from the evil of their doings. 
You see, we're in a race. But how do you and I prepare for a race? I want to look at three participles that drive home the point of putting aside the spiritual fat. We've got to cut off the blubber. Because that's what ladens us all down. Number one. It's in verse 1. It's seeing it. Look at verse 1. Seeing it. We have to see the faith of the fathers, the patriarchs. And what do we do? We then imitate it. We're to imitate what Abraham did. That's what we're to do. Number 2. Verse 1. We're to laying it aside, laying it aside. What are we to lay it aside? That which encumbers us. Whatever diverts my attention, whatever diverts your attention, we've got to lay it aside. In context, it's talking about the Aaronic priesthood, the temple, and the sacrifices are viewed as what? Blubber. Excess spiritual fat that needs to be trimmed away. Trimmed away. It's the spiritual fat that needs to be set aside. Why? Because it's diverting our attention away from the goal. It's diverting our attention away from the goal. We need to remove the superfluous things that hinder our ability to complete and compete in the race of life, don't we? We've got to strip it down and get mean and lean. We've got to be fighting fit and ready. Trim down the blah, 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 blah. It's serious stuff, though. And look, the third thing. Looking, verse 2. This is speaking of how we should be running the race. Don't be looking over your shoulder. Because if you look over your shoulder, what could happen? You could lose the race. You're distracted. You just focus. Forget what they're doing. Forget what they're doing in the country club tomorrow. You just focus because in a week we've got Pesach, Passover, and apparently 1 Corinthians 5. If you're a believer in Yahusha, Paul said to the Corinthians, you shall what? Celebrate the Moed of Pesach. You shall celebrate the feast of Passover. Don't be distracted by all the mumbo-jumbo going on. You stay focused. Because if you get sidetracked and you start running around trying to pick up eggs, you're going to miss the matzah that's ahead. Do you see what I'm saying? You've got to be careful because it's a distraction. It's a, I mean, Obama's going to be picking up eggs if that's not a sign for you. All right? If that's not a sign for you that it's not biblical, he's going to be running around the rose garden picking up eggs with little children. So you know that's not right. Come on. Or righteous. It's speaking of looking how we should be running the race. Don't look over your shoulder because you'll lose the race. We need to look away from the distractions. We need to look away from the doubters, the disbelieving and the deaf of heart. Verse 1, what is the sin that does so easily beset us? Verse 1, what is that sin that does so easily beset us? This is the sin, definite article, a particular sin that needs to be laid aside, otherwise it's going to cost you and I the race. It's the sin of apostasy, and that sin of apostasy is connected to the altar system, 
and the Aaronic priesthood, from which them that are hearing this message are what? To turn away from. Because they were tempted to turn back to the religious status quo in Jerusalem. That's what our audience, they were tempted to return back to the religious status quo, the Pharisaic and Sadducean system. And for us, we need to be careful not to turn back towards the book and the law and the book of the covenant status quo as Judaism and Christianity, the institutionalized religion I'm talking about, not the people have signed on to. The status quo. Question the status quo. Now, the Greek word for this race that you and I are running, it's very true. The Greek word is agon, where we get agony. Because it's painful, isn't it, sometimes? It is. Many of you have lost friends, have rubs with your family, especially around the feasts and festivals of Yahuwah, because you no longer want to do the things that you used to do because you have the conviction that it's time to get off the teat and get on the meat. Right? I said that very carefully. Teat. But if I was feeling even hotter and saucier, I might deliberately say something else. But it is. It is agon. It's agony. It's an agonizing race with much pain and with a lot of heart pounding. How many of you? How many of you have opened the Bible and you're trying to share your faith with people and you're like, No, it doesn't say that. Let's re- calm down. It's a heart pounding, agonizing race, especially if you get into scriptural debates, right? Look at the second. The second incentive for enduring patient endurance is the suffering of Yahusha himself. What kind of attitude we have? Will it either be our success or the attitude we have will be our downfall? What's your attitude like? Verse 2. What was the joy that was set before Yahusha? That he would sit down. At the right hand of the Father and be restored to glory. He focused not on what was immediately in front of him, did he? But he focused on the goal, which was to finish well, which is our example. Verse 3. For consider him that suffered such opposition from those sinners against himself. From those who opposed their own beings. So that you do not become discouraged, nor you being become remiss. Ye have not yet resisted to darm, to blood, striving against sin. No one in this group that the author is addressing has yet suffered unto death. Do you see that? Verse 4. Not resisted to darm not resisted to blood. So this tells us to who this writing is addressed, doesn't it? Is it addressed to those in Jerusalem? Why not? This author 
the writer of the book of Hebrews, is he addressing a Jerusalem audience, the city, not the heavenly city, but the earthly city 2,000 years ago? It says that they had not yet resisted unto blood, but we know that what? Zephaniah, Stephen, he resisted unto, unto death, didn't he? We know that Yaakov, the half-brother of Yahusha, what happened to him? He resisted unto death, and where were they? In Jerusalem. So our audience cannot be in Jerusalem. You see how we connect it? So we know that they are outside of Jerusalem. I believe in Judea, outside of Jerusalem, because they had not resisted unto death. It disqualifies a Jerusalem audience right here. Verse 4, striving against sin. Striving, the Greek word for striving there is antagonosomai antagonosomai that's its complete form this is where of course we get our english word antagonize and agony from antagonize and agony we need to do what then what do we need to do with sin that sin that's in me i need to antagonize it that's what i need to do we start antagonizing the sin within each other if we're truly in the faith So that's why you're all salty. We've got a particular salty crowd in the back, the four of them right here. But that's what we do is we start to antagonize one another and we antagonize the sin. That's what we should do. If we see it in the assembly, we call it out. Because this isn't a country club, right? So that's why we antagonize and then people say... Oh, that Matthew, he's so antagonistic. Yes, I'm supposed to be and so are you when it comes to the faith. If we're really walking this out, right? Verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation that speaks to you as to children. My son, despise not the chastening of the master Yahuwah, nor grow weak when you are rebuked by him. Verse 5, we need to mature as as Yahweh's children, don't we? We need to mature. Don't forget the exhortation that your sons and daughters. You see, there's so many distractions, head turners, that would encourage us to forget that we are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation and a royal priesthood. But don't be distracted by those head turners. Use, keep on focused. Now, have forgotten in verse 5, have forgotten is the Greek word eklathomene, which means made of little account. Have forgotten is the Greek word eklathomene, which means made of little account. I mean, the question is, why? Why would anyone want to make the priesthood of little account? Why would anyone want to turn your head away from the priesthood? Why would they want to make that of little account? Because it discomforts theologians that the power of the priesthood rests in the people. Not the hierarchy and not the hegemony. And that is very troubling to the status quo. That the people have the power and the anointing. Verse 6, for whom the master Yahweh loves, 
he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. The Greek word there is padeo, padeo, and it means scourging or literally flogging. Our author then draws a linguistic parallel using that with Luke 23, verse 16. I will therefore, padeo, chastise him and release him, Pilate says, of Yahushua. Lucas 23, verse 22. And he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore, padeo, chastise him and let him go. So this Greek word gives us a linguistic connection to what? The chastising of the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 12. If you endure discipline, Yahweh deals with you as with sons. For what son does not, does the Abba, the father, not discipline? But uh, if you are without discipline by which we all are trained, then you are bastards and not true-born sons. That's the thing. There's a bunch of bastards out there. Right? Bloody bastards. It's legitimate. It's illegitimate. They're illegitimate. Verse 9, furthermore, we have the Avot, the fathers of our flesh who corrected us, and we gave them respect. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Abba of Rachamin and live? For they truly, for a few days, disciplined us after their own understanding. But he, for our profit, that we might be partakers of his Kadosh nature, his holy nature. Now, no discipline for the present seems to be fun, but sorrowful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields fruits of shalom, peace, to those who are trained by that discipline. Of course, he's quoting from Mishlei, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11, which proves two things. Number one, Yahuwah disciplines those that he loves. And number two, Discipline is a sign of sonship. It's a sign of sonship. Don't regard discipline lightly to the point of making little account of the importance of the priesthood, the sacrifice, and the temple of Mashiach. Don't regard the discipline to come lightly. You see... If you're tempted to forget all that has been taught and admonished thus far, you will be disciplined. That's what the author is communicating. If you decide to slip back into the status quo of the Aaronic priesthood, temple, and sacrifice, don't expect that when the Romans come in 70 that you're going to live. You're going to die. Now, history does record to us that the audience from the the writer of the book of Hebrews, history does record that they left and they heeded the author's instructions. 
that they left and crossed over the Jordan for three years and not one of the audience died in the revolt of 70. Yet there were millions in Jerusalem that died when the Romans came in and sacked Jerusalem in 70 of the common era. But history testifies that our audience, they listened to the author and they left Jerusalem, they crossed over the Jordan and for three and a half years they waited and not one of them died by the hands of the infidels. Isn't that amazing? Because they listened. How many are going to listen to the words of the author today in this generation for the same admonishment? Or how many are going to be rounded up in the FEMA camps and rounded up by the New World Order because they don't listen and they cannot discern? Will we listen? Because it's the same battle. There is a parallel. We live in a parallel universe, except I believe that we are the final generation. But this message is still for us today. Discipline, it does bring profit. Verse 10, that we may be partakers of his holiness. And we'll bear, verse 11, peaceable fruit and practical righteousness. The outcome of discipline in the view for the children of Yahuwah, is not that they were being evil, that they needed discipline, thus needing repentance. But the discipline brings about a larger capacity for what? When we're disciplined, it brings about a larger capacity for endurance. That's what it does. It makes you and I stronger. It's not because you were in sin that you were disciplined. That's another, that's another issue entirely. But when we're in the faith, we'll be disciplined because it's going to make us stronger and able to endure what is about to come because he loves us. In fact, C.S. Lewis put it this way in The Problem of Pain. God whispers. God whispers in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to a deaf world. And he does. And he does. You see, the context is suffering due to one's faith. Not one's downfalls and sin, which of course is another subject entirely. Verse 12, therefore lift up your hands that hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. There's three illustrations now, if you caught it, using the human anatomy. Number one, in verse 12, the Greek word anothorpareme speaks of one becoming a deformed weakling in need of re 
invigoration because their muscles have atrophied. Their muscles have atrophied. How many people do you know whose spiritual muscles have atrophied? They may have come to the faith 20, 30, 40 years ago, but they've just sat in the pews and their muscles have become atrophied. Their spiritual muscles have become atrophied. Even Moshe Rabbeinu, what did he have to have done so that he could have victory? He had to have his hanging down arms held up so that he could defeat the what? The Amicalites. Even he had to have his arms that hung low held up. In verse 12, we find the Greek word paraleo. Paraleo. Paralyzed knees. Enfeebled. And they will not hold you up in the day of battle. Number three, the third illustration utilizing the human anatomy. Make straight paths for your feet. Why? Why do you need to make straight paths for your feet? Who cares? Because the weak need, think about it, the weak need will be knocked out of joint because there's boulders, right? They're already weak at the knees and there's a boulder. Then what's that going to do? They're going to have to what? They're going to be even more crippled. So make straight paths because the weak need will be knocked out of joint by boulders, by pitfalls in the road, and they won't get any healing. Why must the path be made straight? Because they keep going in circles, around and around and around with their faith, pulling themselves out of joint. And because they keep going around and around with the pagan syncretism, which is now their established dogma and faith in the 21st century, they become out of joint. They get knocked over by all the stumbling blocks that are put before them and they become kolos Greek lame they become lame do you realize that the institutionalized church is catering to the lame tomorrow that's what it's doing because they never protested enough from the Catholic syncretism that was established in 325 at the Council of Nicaea to try and accommodate the wars in Rome. It's such a sad testimony. He died so that we could live, not so that we would compromise. It's interesting, this Greek word kolos, I mean, I love finding words in Scripture and then going and finding them in other places. The Scripture is the dictionary for the Scripture. Let's find where this Greek word, kolos, comes from. Melachim Aleph, very telling, very telling indeed. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21. You know when the Lord was up there on the mountain, Baal, That is the name of Baal. Go into your Webster's Dictionary. The name of Baal is the Lord. So you have to be careful because if you follow the doctrines of men, you'll actually end up choosing Baal for your master instead of Yahuwah. 
for your master. First Kings chapter 18, verse 21, Eliyahu, Elijah says to the prophets of the Lord, Baal, how long will you be limping, kolos, lame, between two opinions? If the Lord is Elohim, serve him. But if Yahuwah is Elohim, then serve him. Who are you going to serve, the Lord or Yahuwah? And now, today, most people will serve who? The Lord, because they haven't been taught the name of their Elohim. Yet Islam knows the name of their Elohim. But we don't know the name of our Elohim. And you'll be hopping between two opinions and you'll become lame. Because today is not, we do not have the luxury that they had a hundred years ago. We do not have the luxury that they had 50 years ago. Because if you don't know the name of your Elohim, then your head will roll with the saber of Islam. So you either stand up and you know who you serve, or you fall. Because there are many gods, and I do not serve God. Who's God? Who the heck's God? Thank you. The Middle Eastern deity of luck and fortune. No, we serve Yahuwah Elohim. There's only one. Allah is one of the 365 daily deities that was in the Kabbalah. And if you don't say that you'll serve him, you'll lose your head. It's called the mark of the beast. Or you stand and you say you serve Yahuwah. Or you be between two opinions and you're not sure. And you're serving the Lord. That's exactly what Elijah tells us in 1 Kings. We don't have time. There has always been a remnant. And he's always called his people because he circumcised their hearts and he pulls them out. But if you're with the masses, that's the broad road. And now is the time to be pulled out of it. Because there's a whole bunch of beloved, and I mean it, beloved Christians that have been so duped and they're between two opinions that they're not even sure, especially if you go to the Bible book house and you pick up a New Testament that is translated for an Arabic speaker, they actually put wherever the Lord is, because it's substituted, they put Allah. Oh, because the Lord and Allah is just a name for God. And now you're between two opinions. You're not sure anymore because nobody told you that the yod Hey wah got removed from the text close to 7,000 times and replaced with Baal, the Lord. And now if you were in Elijah's position, you would make the wrong decision. This is some crazy stuff. But because it's tradition... And everybody's doing it, and you're the looking around and not focused on the finish. And you're looking around, well, everybody else in the church is saying it. <laughs> you're not going to make the end of the race. It's some scary stuff, isn't it? That was totally not in my teaching. Sorry about that. 
Let's get back into the text. Verse 14. We were in the text, though. We were in 1 Kings 18, verse 21. Don't believe what I'm saying. You go and have a look. Eliyahu, Elijah, was serving the Yod, Hey, Wah, Hey, and the prophets of the Lord were serving the Lord. Who will be the one that you will serve? If you hop between two opinions, you will be holos, you will be lame, weak need, and feeble. Verse 15, take heed lest any man fall short of the favor of Yahuwah, lest any root of bitterness spring up to harm you, by which many be defiled, lest there be a fornicator or a profane person. Again, the language, a porno babe. A porno babe. Need I say more? That's it. A porno, babe. Make a covenant with your bloody eyes, please. Because that's exactly what it says. If you look at the porno, babe, you're a bloody fornicator and a profane person and you're not in the kingdom. So shut down your devices. Stop doing it at home on the computer when nobody's looking because he is looking and so are a cloud of witnesses when you look at the porno, babe. Okay? I mean, I don't stand up here to compromise and I'm not going to because it's despicable. So there. As Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his Bechorah, his birthright. Verse 17. For you know how that afterwards, when he would have inherited the bracha, the blessing, he was rejected, for he had no chance of recovering it, though he sought it carefully with tears. Verse 15. Take heed, look carefully. The Greek word there for looking carefully is Escopeo, escopeo, which is where, kind of ironically, where we get our English word Episcopal. So I think the Episcopalians should change the name of their religious denomination because they are not looking carefully into the word, are they? But that's what they're named after. The people who look carefully into the word have neglected to look carefully into the word because they've syncretized a whole bunch of paganism in with the true faith. They shouldn't be called Episcopals. I should actually be wearing a dog collar, and so should you. We are the Episcopal congregation of Torah to the tribes because we do carefully look into the word of Yahweh, right? That's what it means. Episcopal, to look carefully, it comes from the Greek word episcopeo, means one who is supposed to look carefully into the word. We're to see and to have constant spiritual oversight into each other's lives. Be careful because there is a three-stage progression downward that we do not want to be a part of. Number one, failure to progress. The lame that we will see tomorrow have failed to progress. It's very dangerous. Failure to progress 
a moral separation from Yahuwah by falling short and coming entrapped with syncretism. A failure to apprehend and appropriate chesed, his grace, properly. Number two on that downward spiral in the three-stage progression. Infidelity. Failure to appropriate grace will lead to bitterness, which will result in the bitterness spilling over and causing defilement of many. The root manifesting itself with murmuring, backbiting, maliciousness, failing to have peace with all men. And the third downward spiral, contempt of duty and privilege. Esau trampled underfoot spiritual things, as our audience also was tempted to do in regards to the priesthood of Melchizedek. Esau was profane. Why? Because he did not obtain Kedushah. He did not obtain holiness. You see, there's two obstacles to holiness. Kedushah, Kedoshim. Number one, personal impurity, being a fornicator and sexually immoral. And number two, failure to grasp hold of that blessing that is set before you. You see, don't barter or throw away the blessing of the priesthood that the author has set before us in favor of going back to the religious status quo. Esau is an example of a son who was rejected on the basis of the decision he made. The decision he made was what? Irrevocable. It was irrevocable. Oh, I changed my mind. And I'm going to cry the tears of Esau. Too bad. It's too bad. It's an irrevocable decision that you made. You see, Esau is the perfect antithesis to the heroes of the faith in chapter 11, isn't it? He trades off what is unseen and what lies in the future for what is immediately right before him, the bowl of orange lentils. Because he wanted that immediate gratification. Later, you see, later... When you see the impotency, seriously, when you see today the impotency of the Levitical regime in contrast with the supernatural power of the Malkitzedic priesthood and you change your mind, desirous of inheriting the priesthood blessing, it will be too late even if you seek it with tears. You see, the bitter root is the false thinking and practice that has caused some then and now to at least contemplate falling back into some form of sectarian Judaism back then. And today we have people falling back or embracing sectarian Zionism, believing that the state of Israel is biblical Israel when it's not. You see, verse 18, for you have not come to the mountain that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor to blackness and darkness and to tempest. 
Listen to their language. Because we're going to make the linguistic parallelisms, okay? I'm going to say that again because it's so powerful. For you have not come to the mountain that might be touched. Where on earth is he getting this from? Right? We're in our scriptures. We know exactly where he's getting this from. Unless we began in the book of John and just stayed in the New Testament. Then we haven't a bloody clue what's going on, right? For you have not come to the mountain that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of the shofar and the voice of words, which voice that they heard begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. Verse 20, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, It was to be stoned or thrust through with a spear. And so terrible was the sight that Moshe said, I exceedingly fear and quake and tremble. But you have come to Hard Zion, Mount Zion, and to the city of the living Eloah, the heavenly Yerushalayim. Why on earth then, if there is no priesthood today, Please textually tell me why on earth our author is talking about the Malkitzedic priesthood and now taking us directly back to Exodus 19 through 24:11. It's the book of the covenant that he's referencing. Why is he doing that if the Malkitzedic priesthood is not for you today and it's got nothing to do with the book of the covenant? You're going to have to throw out the book of Hebrews, denigrate scripture, elevate history. That's how you'll do it. That's how you'll fleece the sheep. So that's what they'll do. But not you and me. Because we're not infidels. Verse 23, the Malkizedic nation of priests. It's referencing Shemot 19 verse 5. They were always viewed as the firstborn. Their ordination is enrolled from before the womb. Where? In the Shamaim, in the heavens. Our author is speaking on the calling from heaven Upon our lives. You and I have a calling from heaven upon our lives. We are already enrolled, ordained in the Malkizedic priesthood in heaven. That's what the text says. It's a calling of security. In contrast of a calling shrouded in fear and terror and trembling. What do you want? A calling of security? Or do you want a calling that is shrouded in fear, tempest, terror and trembling? You choose. That's what he's contrasting. And he's referencing back to Shemot 19. You see, what do you want? And why are so many that have woken up To the great tribulation reality that the scripture does not teach there's going to be a pre-tribulation rapture. That you're actually going to go through the tribulation. Why do so many then start packing everything and being fearful? (gasps) Oh, I've got to get my beans. I've got to get my ammunition. I've got to get my backpack and we're going to run away right now. And it's fearful. No, we make provision. Yes. 
but we are secure in our calling because we are already ordained and enrolled in heaven that we know that we will be led by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And yes, we make provision but we're not going to be trembling around in fear at every little Islamic wobbly-woo. Right? Wobbly-woo? Verse 22. And to an innumerable multitude of heavenly malachim, Angels, to the gathering and congregation of the Bachorim that is enrolled in the Shamaim. The priesthood is enrolled in the heavens. I mean, I should be dead 100 times over for the devil may care life that I've lived. But I'm not. You're not. Why? Because we were enrolled in the Shamaim in spite of ourselves. In spite of ourselves, we were enrolled in the Malkitzedic priesthood in the Shamaim. That is called positional sanctification. But because I have positional sanctification and I'm enrolled in the Malkitzedic priesthood in the Shamaim, I have a duty, I am duty bound to walk out personal sanctification to testify to my positional sanctification and that is the Malkitzedic priesthood walked out on earth. You don't neglect your personal sanctification because you have positional sanctification. They are intricately connected. The priesthood is today. It is today. It's practical sanctification that I walk out today to testify to my positional sanctification. He's talking about practical sanctification, priesthood today with, of course, positional sanctification, the enrollment in the heavens. You see, this year at Pesach, at Passover, we'll have a confirmation. Confirmation of what? Our ordination into the Malkitzedic priesthood. It's the Kadosh, the holy step in practical sanctification, testifying to what is positionally already taken place. That's why the priesthood is for today. That's why we're being ordained. Not for some mystical power, but with the goal in mind of positional sanctification. We have a duty to walk out practical sanctification at Passover, don't we? We do. The priesthood, in sum, on ordination. And this is what some of our author's audience had trouble grasping, and apparently some still have trouble grasping. Today, we are ordained and enrolled into the Malkitzedic priesthood in heaven 
That's positional sanctification. And we're to confirm that ordination publicly, publicly at Passover. And that's practical sanctification. Or you will have no part of him. That's the foot washing procedure. Remember Yochanan Chamat Beel, John the Immerser? He didn't want to at first wash Moshiach's feet. And he said, if you don't do it, you'll have no part of me, which was his priesthood. You see, the foot washing ceremony connects all the way back to the covenant of Bereshit 12, Genesis 12, 14, because you see it, that connection rod later in Genesis 18. And we'll talk about that next week as we do the teaching on the Passover. You see, it was only with the golden calf breach that the Levites replaced the nation of priests with a nation with a priest. That's all over now. Don't ever let anyone distract you and let you gaze over here, gaze over there towards anywhere else. Because the reality is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek and his new covenant priesthood is for us today. Hebrews 7, 2 Peter 2 verse 5, 2 Peter 2 verse 9. Giliana, Revelation 1, 5, and 20. You see, the book of the covenant was ratified when? The book of the covenant was ratified in the context of what? It just told you. Terror. Burned with fire. Blackness. Darkness. Tempest. You have to ask yourself the question. Why was the book of the covenant ratified in the context of terror? Yet... The new covenant was ratified with the absence of terror, was it not? So the book of the covenant was ratified with darkness, tempest, terror at the mountain. Yet the new covenant is ratified with the absence of terror. You see, the book of the covenant was ratified in the context of terror to elicit, to bring to mind the Genesis 15 death penalty position that was 430 years earlier. The mountain of terror was the fruition of those promises, but but it didn't absolve the responsibility to the covenant terms laid forth with, did it? Hence the terror. The new covenant was ratified with the absence of terror. Why? Because the terror was inflicted upon Yahusha at Passover and it removed the saints from that terror once and for all. It's amazing. It's absurd to try and turn your head when you are focused on the race away from the priesthood. The language is dripping with the priesthood for you today in the Bible text. It's dripping with it. You have to get rid of the text to get rid of the Malkitzedic priesthood. And that is desperation 
and deceitfulness. Elevating history over scripture is not right. History supplements scripture and supports scripture. But you've got to choose what you elevate and what you denigrate. Verse 18, the whole setting is one of ordination. This whole setting at the mountain, this is what we're doing next week at Passover. So next week on Shabbat and at Pesach and on Hag Matzot, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, I will not be teaching on the book of Hebrews chapter 13, but we will be teaching on Pesach, Passover, the ordination into the priesthood, why we do it and what and how you walk that out as a priest and what that empowers you to do. It's going to be so, I'm so excited. But we have to look at this today. It's perfectly establishing and setting forth with what we're about to do next week at Passover. The whole setting in verse 18 is one of ordination and conversion. One of ordination and conversion. In fact, look at verse 18 of our text. The main verb that controls the contrast, the main verb that controls the contrast, I love this, is proslophate. Proslophate, where we get the word proslophite. It comes from prosopherme, prosopherme, where we get our English word proselyte, one who converts over and is ordained into the faith. You see, we're supposed to convert over and be ordained into the faith. We've converted from the book of the law and its ironic priest to the new book of the covenant, ordained into the priesthood as the general assembly of the firstborn. It comes from Mount Zion. Verse 22. And to an innumerable multitude, multitude excuse me, of heavenly malachim, angels. To the gathering and congregation of the Bacharim, firstborn, that is enrolled in the Shamaim, heaven. And to Yahweh, the Shofet, the judge of all. And to the Ruachim of Zadachim, the righteousness and those made perfect. And to Yahusha, the mediator of the Brit Hadashah, and to the Dharm, the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Finishing up here, we find six occupants that live in the Kadosh city. There's only six occupants that live in the Kadosh city. Number one, the holy elect Malachim angels. Number two, the priesthood of Zedek. That is the general assembly of the firstborn. Number three, Yahweh, the judge of all. Number four, the Ruachim of Zadik's made perfect. Number five, Yahusha, the Zedek mediator of the Brit Hadashah. And number six, the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than that of Abel. Number six actually emphasizes the new covenant was ratified with what? Better blood. Much better blood. Abel was the first person, what? 
to offer a blood sacrifice. And now, though dead, blood is still the only acceptable way to Yahuwah, isn't it not? It's still the only acceptable way to Yahuwah. When did Abel die, by the way? Passover. Passover. The 14th of Aviv, according to Targum Jonathan, Genesis chapter 4, verse 3. You see, there's three prerequisites that can save you or rob you of salvation depending upon your choices in relationship to them. Number one, we find the Greek word ekor, ekor. Number two, the location. Location is everything, isn't it? Then number three, ekor speaking. What is ekor? The Greek word ekor comes, of course, from Greek mythology, the fluid that flows like blood in the veins of Elohim. Echor, from Greek mythology, the fluid that flows like blood in the veins of Elohim. You see, blood, animal blood by the hand of men, the sons of Aaron, or will you choose Malchizedek's blood by the hand of Yah? It's a better blood, is it not? You see? Two, location. Is it going to be upon the Aaronic altar? Or upon the Malchizedek altar outside the gates, Hebrews 13, which they, the Eof, have no right to partake of. And number three, Echor speaking, blood speaking, Abel's blood that speaks continually on earth, animal blood that speaks continually in the darkened corridors of Judaic religion, or Messiah's blood that speaks continually from the Shamaim, what will you choose? These are all choices that you have to make. Verse 25, see that you refuse him that not speaks. For if they escape not who refuse him that spoke on earth, how much more shall we not escape? If we turn away from him that speaks from the Shamaim, the heavens. Verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also he shakes the Shamaim, the heavens. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken, the things that have been made, so that those things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, receiving a malchut, a kingdom that cannot be moved, let us have favor by which we may serve Yahuwah acceptably with reverence and with fear. For our Eloah is a consuming fire. He is a consuming fire. You see, when the book of the covenant was received, there was shaking. There was a terror to remind the nation of Malkitzedic priests of the connection of the ratified book of the covenant to the Genesis 15 death penalty position 
430 years earlier. They were entering into the covenant, but they had to remember that it was connected back to terror. They had to remember that it was connected back to terror. To our audience that the author is speaking to, that were also Malkitzedic Kohanim, priests. There's a stern warning of the upcoming shaking that's going to happen. This is written somewhere a few years prior to 70 of the Common Era. And they were being warned that the Romans were riding in and there was going to be a shaking. And what they chose to do would be their life or their destruction. With us today, as we finish, as I close, as the new covenant, kingdom of Malkizedic priests, you and I, that are enrolled in heaven, that are enrolled in the Shamayim, there is a stern warning. There is a stern warning of the shaking coming upon this generation. A stern warning upon the shaking that is coming on this last generation. A final shaking of the new world order. Their Illuminati henchmen as they get those FEMA trains rolling and they start to pack the stadiums with the bodies of the lame and those with the hanging down arms and the wobbly knee competition. Because they're going to do it. Or will you stand unshakable as the Kohanim, the priests, after the order of Melchizedek? See, this is the application. Let's get right down to it. This is the application. That which is shakable is temporary. That which is unshakable is eternal. It's enrolled in heaven. Enrolled in the Shamayim. The shakeable will be destroyed. So that that which is unshakable will remain. We have an unshakable faith. Because we have an unshakable priesthood. Because we have an unshakable high priest after the order of Malkitzedek. That's the reality that he's spent now 12 chapters communicating to our audience. And history records that not one of the Ivrim, the Hebrews, perished in the revolt of 70 of the common era. That they crossed over the Jordan, according to Josephus and other historians. And they lived there for three and a half years because they heeded the warning and they forsook the status quo of the religious hegemony and hierarchy and they said yes we will follow and we are a royal priesthood a holy nation a kadosh people amen amen, amen. questions comments i went long but that's kind of my mo it seems right we have the microphone
Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Yeah, I mean, that, that obvious connections, right? Obvious connections right there. Got to cross over the Jordan. That's what he's calling us to do. Cross over the Jordan and take the land that's been given to you. Any other questions, comments in the back? I saw some hands up as I was teaching. Nothing specifically. Yes. Could you expand a little bit on, um, in, in uh, let's see, 12.1, when you said the definite article was sin and the sin of apostasy. Could you attack that a little bit more? Okay, the sin of apostasy. You see, what, what, would, what had happened, excuse me, is that there was a physical judgment coming upon the nation. Because the nation as a whole had rejected Yahusha on the basis that the Ruach, the spirit that, in, that was in him, was in fact an unclean shad, demon. So they, that was the sin, the definite article of apostasy. They rejected the Moshiach as a nation because they accused him of having a demon. Now, associated with that was the religion of the day. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, the whole religious hegemony, had rejected Mashiach on the basis that they said the Ruach in him was a shad. That is the sin of apostasy. If you then return to that religious hierarchy that has made that judgment, you will be caught up in that judgment and face a physical death which is exactly what happened. Those that returned to the Aaronic temple system, they died a physical death, millions of them, when the Romans rode in. It was only those that questioned the religious status quo, said, no, we follow the Melchizedek high priest. Acts chapter 6, many of the priests of the Aaronic order were leaving and coming to the Nazarene faith and they went outside the gates where those that remained in apostasy had no right to come to the altar up on the Mount of Olives where Mashiach was nailed to the tree. They have no right to eat from that altar which was actually the Paraduma altar, the altar of the red heifer where Mashiach was sacrificed. Today, again, we have to make that decision. Will we go with the religious status quo or will we go with the priesthood of the order of Melchizedek? Because the religious status quo syncretizes and it calls something holy that is profane, and it calls things that are profane holy. But Yahweh says, my people shall not worship me the way the heathen worship their gods. But the other religions out there today that have compromised the faith have syncretized the faith, just as they had back in the time of Yahushua. It was a syncretism. They had mixed in Herodianism, Romanism, Greek paganism, into the Sadducean religious Aaronic system. That even Ezekiel, he went into the temple and he said, they've got their back to the altar and they're weeping for Tammuz. Of course, Tammuz is associated with Christmas. And of course, his mother was Easter, the bare-breasted fertility goddess, and so forth and so on. It's insane. 
And that's the world we live in. They tell you it's black when it's white. They say it's up when it's down. They say it's holy when it's profane. And they call something clean which is unclean. That is the religious hierarchy. And Yahweh has always called his remnant people who are circumcised of heart. And they say, something doesn't smell right. Can you give me the next verse, please? Because it doesn't say that in my Bible. And then you slowly get pushed out. Question everything. Elevate scripture and elevate Yahusha. Denigrate religion, doctrine, and dogma. Amen. Abba Yahweh, we thank you for the discernment that you are putting on your people today as the time is pressing. We thank you, Abba, for your holy, holy Kadosh, Kadosh name. And we thank you for your son, Yahusha Hamashiach, who is the Pesach lamb, the lamb, Abba, that's enrolled in the Shamaim, that we are enrolled in the Shamaim. And he wants to share that high priestly authority with his people as a kingdom of priests. So Malchut Kohanim. Amen. Amen. Thank you.